First of all, may I say, it's lovely to see so many people here. And I wonder how many people did attend the 45 show. It's a long while ago. It's, it's nearly 70 years. Uh, I would like to begin by reading an extract from Flight for the uh, 1st of November, 1945. Never in aviation history has there been such a complete and up-to-date show of aircraft and ancillaries as there was to be seen at Farnborough last Monday. And never, probably, were there so many aviation VIPs, both service and civilian, gathered in one place. After the years of necessary secrecy, it was possible, following the example of the Navy at Heston a few weeks ago, to put most of this country's latest aviation goods in the shop window for semi-public view. But that was not all. At Farnborough, the display, which is usually described as a static exhibition, was as extensive, up-to-date and impressive uh, an outdoor display. Apart from the new, newest examples of our own engines, very wide selection of German aircraft, engines and ancillaries were included, and the flying display culminated with an actual demonstration of two of the less lethal German jet aircraft. Uh, now, I think what I'd like to do is say, let's go back to 1945. What a different world it was. Uh, there were vast numbers of people being demurred and they were looking, what could they do? Could they get their jobs back? Some of the jobs had gone. But you met so many service people. There was much sorrow because so many people had lost dear friends. The RAF had schemed uh, Scheme A for the end of the war, Scheme B for the immediate post-war period in Europe, getting ready for the Far East. But it did a quick change because after August and the dropping of the atomic bomb, then Plan C came in, and that was for the post-war Air Force. In July '44, the air staff had decided that jets must equip fighter squadrons. Therefore, someone's going to have to build them. There's going to be some work for the industry. But in August 45, the RF doesn't really need many aeroplanes because it got an astonishing 55,000 airframes of all shapes and sizes. Uh, what about the industry? It's got to switch to peacetime needs, production cuts. Is there going to be unemployment? And uh, there, then there is the deficit. We had borrowed one way or another three billion pounds. Today we talk about billions as if, as if they're pennies, don't we? But three billion in 1945 is a staggering amount of money. So what is essential? We must export. Well, living three doors away from me, or my family, there were two ladies. My mother knew them well. And they happened to say to her, she said, Bill's coming to see us in a week or so. They were very friendly with the Farron family. Bill was Sir William Farron, the director at Farnborough. When he came, one of them said, how are you getting on? He said, well, we've got this wonderful exhibition coming up. German aircraft, British aircraft. We're going to show the RAE as well. It's going to be really wonderful. And one of the ladies said, oh, young Michael along the way, he'd love to go. And to our utter amazement, two invites arrived. We didn't go on the VIP day. We went on the second day and the third day. And uh, we saw some of the British aircraft. But I was astonished with just how much there was to look at. I thought, how, how, how can I see all this? Getting there was a problem, by the way. We lived in Cambridge. And Cambridge to Farnborough, four hours by car at least, five hours by train, London, Aldershot bus. And you wouldn't want to go in, in your car if there was going to be a lot of fog and smog in November. And sustenance. Oh, of course, you go to an air show now and there's plenty to eat and plenty to drink. There was nothing. You had to go all day long. The only hope you got was an awful buffet on a railway station. That was it. Oh, and no film. Oh, no. It wasn't that you couldn't take photographs. Oh, yes, you could take all the photographs you wanted. But you hadn't got film. 
you've got your camera. So it's notebook, pencil. Don't forget your pencil sharpener, by the way. No borrow and a good memory. Well, when we arrived, we weren't quite sure what we were going to see. There seemed to be so much to see. And as we went in, down the RAE road and through the gate, there were the British aeroplanes, new ones. There was the Avro Tudor. Fascinating in its state because it had got an RF serial number and it got a British registration and the red, white and blue stripes underneath like they had in the wartime. And uh, we looked around, went to the Lancastrian, and I said to somebody, how many people does it carry? He said, well, not as many as a Tudor, it carries nine. But a Tudor's transatlantic, that carries 12, you see. <laughs> and there was a York, and there was the Halifax, the Halifax 8. Someone said, have you heard of the Hermes? Well, of course, I was 17 years old at the time. Naturally, I said, oh, yes. Uh, but he said, well, it's coming along. <laughs> if you say no, you, you, you don't like to say no, do you? But sometimes it's the wrong thing to do. There was the Viking there, sort of a Wellington with a bit of a civilian look about it. The little de Havilland Dove, very nice. Uh, and, of course, there were two bombers. One was the Windsor, the other was the Lincoln. Lincoln had a most peculiar nose. Uh, I, I wondered why the nose was like that. But I, I learnt during the day what was involved. And right in the middle of the show, on the 7th of November, who would have believed it, we captured the world airspeed record in a Meteor 4 of a sort, E360, sort of modified one, at over 600 miles an hour. 600? That's breathtaking. A staggering speed. And then there were the, what do you might call the SIEC types. There was uh, four maritime aeroplanes like the Brigham and so on, four 50-mile-an-hour fighters. Ah, and the spitefully MV-5 sitting together. And if you remember the MV-5 and Jan Zirikovsky, what a fabulous performance it always was when he flew it. But there was something rather ironic about that. Some years ago, I was asked to write an internal history of fighters of the ministry. And I discovered that the spike would have been turned down because it was difficult to maintain and it had few advantages over a Spitfire 22. But also by the side was the lovely Martin Baker, MV5. Well, the MV5 was to play a very important part in the Royal Air Force because it was taken away and it was taken to Watersham and also Wittering where the organisation which was working out central servicing for the RAF worked it out with the MB5. So when you think if you're in the Air Force in the 40s and 50s and 60s, central servicing came in and it was very important. That's partly due to the MB5. And last of all, of course, there was the mighty Shetland. We hadn't been there long when this started up. What a sight. I stood by the side of the peritrack and I watched the winds are coming, the worst propellers going, and all those wheels hanging down. A wonderful sight. I'd seen it flying before, but the nose, of course, wasn't the nose for a production Windsor. It would have had a nose like the Lincoln. What was the reason for that? Couldn't make that out. It was, of course, geodetic structure, and it had very special fabric, metallic fabric skinning. And when you touched it, it was a weird, weird thing to touch. It felt most peculiar. What about the people there? Well, this is on the Monday. And there's not many people sitting there, is there? Uh, you go, you just imagine what would happen if these aeroplanes were on show today. You'd have people from all over the world. But no one seemed to have heard about this show. Of course, this was the VIP day. But even on the two public days at the end, there were very few people there. But what they did see on Monday was an astonishing sight. Pretty archaic. The... the 150-foot span, big aeroplane, short Shetland. And it went down the runway quite low, I gather, because we didn't see it. But I'd seen it uh, a little while before uh, going down the runway at Bourne, the the Seabro Works, and it was about 50 feet high when it came over. It was an astonishing size. It was so big. Uh, An interesting thing about it, uh, I did find in a file a long while ago when I was doing some work for a maritime aircraft, that Sir William Farron has suggested it might make a bomber. I don't think I want to go over Germany in that. Uh, what, roughly, are we going to see? We're coming in the RAE road. It's not a very big car park, but then, of course, nobody has a car. 
the chauffeur driven and the chauffeur goes somewhere else. Uh, the aircraft part, well, of course, that's a bit confusing. There's uh, a shed uh, where uh, interesting things were held. And you got transport to the other part of the REE, to the materials lab, or you looked in the seaplane tank. And how could you do it in a day? We'd only got five and a half hours. And, well, we, we saw so much and you, you couldn't take it all in. Then that was show number one, the British piece. Then there was the German aircraft. We didn't hang around with the Brits because we thought, well, we'll see those later. Let's have a good look at this. And what do we see? Well, the catalogue mentioned the historical side of it. It said when in the middle of the war things went bad for Germany, then the switch came virtually from bombers to fighters, fast fighters, applying the jet engine to the aircraft to use it. But of course there was a terrible fuel shortage uh, and that fuel shortage overrode everything pretty well. But also these desperate rulers... They demanded all sorts of wonderful things. And uh, they wanted guided weapons. And they wanted V1, V2. And they wanted them all going just like that. And when they did come, well, it was too late because they were fighting on so many fronts and uh, Germany was being bombed. And Were they outclassed? Probably were in 1945. But I wonder if the war had gone a little longer, to 46 and some of those wonderful projects and some of the devices we're going to see in a minute came along. <laughs> Save us, virtually it was, as fast as you can. What about a liquid rocket fighter? Sounds fantastic. Goes very fast, takes a lot of fuel quickly. And from the catalogue, however much thrust is produced, there is limiting speed due to shock stall when aircraft is unmanageable. Higher speeds we know reach, the highest speeds we know reach is 620 miles an hour. 92% of the speed of sound at 30,000. And by a Spitfire, not a jet, but a Spitfire. And in the catalogue, there's this lovely piece It said, no doubt we shall learn someday to exceed this speed. Then there's show number three. If you haven't done enough already and you've got enough energy, then you go to the next piece. Every RAE department had something. Engines, seaplanes, materials, structure, high-speed tunnel, or the other wind tunnels in that lovely big wind tunnel that everybody always wanted to go in. You could go in there and see what was there. There's so much to see. I mean, you, you couldn't digest it. But, well, the German ones are probably the most interesting. We're not going to see those anymore, are we? So let's go and look at the Germans. This Dornier 335, it looked high, a colossal aeroplane. I remember standing underneath and looking at it and thinking, is this really a fighter? And it's a two-seat version. Why has it got an engine at the front and the back? That's quite clever, really, because you're not going to have asymmetric problems. But there is one snag about it. That fin, ventral fin, is quite near the ground. I found from a friend in America a picture of it at Oberpfaffenhofen before it uh, came to the UK. And uh, there it sat, and you can see one or two people quite near it, uh, somewhere a little far away. But it looked so huge. It was colossal. Uh, Never used operationally. And you can see uh, how low the fin is. And I went to the front of it, and one of the... On the private days, there was always someone at the aircraft or at the thing to say, have a look, have a look at this, what do you make of it? Uh, and then you could ask questions and he said to me, look at the wing leading edge, um, here, I can't get it there, it was ever so sharp, he said, it's got a sharp one to avoid a wing group. He said, uh, and it's got a low la- landing incidence, hardly an incidence of wing at all. And he said, uh, landing it would be very difficult. Uh, perhaps we can find someone who would tell us more about that in the evening. <laughs> um, I don't think I'd want to fly in it. <laughs> it could have, of course, have made a night fighter. I mean, you could have used, they talked about having those birds and they hadn't got around to that. But you could have made a night fighter out. I don't think I would have wanted to ride in that top one either. And was it Germany's fastest prop aircraft? Well, possibly. And then the next thing, of course, my father and I said, well, we must have got an ME262. What surprised me is it seemed quite small. 
The engines were underslung, and I thought, that's better than having them with a meteor where you've got that awful banjo thing around the engine with the engine in the middle of it. They are underslung and accessible. And then, as I walked by, I touched it. I thought, oh, fancy touching ME262. And I found it was ever so rough. I was astonished because British aircraft were beginning to get quite smooth at the end of the war, even though they were camouflaged. Um, and it, it wasn't quite what... I expected. Uh, I don't know what I really did expect. Of course, there's a problem if you give a lecture. Do you want all this detail or not? Possibly some people do and some don't. But I put a few things in here. Uh, top speed, for instance, that was recorded in Germany, but uh, apparently in uh, Farnborough it was about correct at 5 to 7 at 20,000. You have to remember that a meteor isn't going to do 400 miles an hour. Not an early meteor, not a meteor one. And it's got, what, 95 minutes at cruise at 32,000. Hmm. Rate of climb, pretty good. Stalls at 100, gosh, and it approaches at 150 miles an hour. You'd be biting your tongue. And, of course, the engines didn't last very long. Being actual flow, they're very complicated. And you can imagine if you look at a cutaway of one of those, just how difficult it would have been to get the early ones going really well. We did see uh, an ME262 fly, and uh, when it came into land, it certainly did go far. But the thing was, when it got on the runway, it, it kept going so fast along the runway, and I thought, good gracious, is it going to stop? Uh, then the next thing we looked at, because, well, it was different, but I did know, someone had told me, that this aeroplane, in the middle of the war, had ejector seats. And when you think that people were fighting for ejector seats in meteors in the late 1940s. Please give us an ejector seat. I spoke to a, a chap who flew NF-11s the other day, and I, I said, how'd you get on with the ejector seat? He said, what ejector seat? <laughs> but one up and one down, it, it, quite amazing. Well, what is astonishing is that this aeroplane, almost as fast as the early mosquitoes, didn't find favour because... In the middle of the war, you didn't want to swatch, uh, switch production from one type to another. You wanted to keep going with what you'd got. And the J-88 fighter in production was good enough. And it's perhaps surprising that only 268 of these Heinkel 219s were made. It was a pioneer. Uh, it was the world's first operational ejector seat aircraft. It's the first German nose wheel aircraft. And it's 382 miles an hour, and we expect 388 from a Mosquito probably. Uh, and there's so many variants, so many variants. And, of course, with upward-firing guns, with the angle-firing shrug, music guns, then, well, it took these, that took a terrible toll of bombers. But what, I don't think I've ever seen it written, except in an official file, uh, but I actually did see the installation. At Duxford, in uh, 1941, there was a... Douglas Havoc, night fighter, and it had six, uh, well, they, I think they were broomsticks actually, but they looked like machine guns. And I met someone from Dartsford and I said, I've seen a Havoc with things sticking up. He said, oh, yes, my idea's better, put two Lewis guns picking up. <laughs> he says, they're only broomsticks. <laughs> I said, well, really, you, you're not kidding, no. But uh, when you hear how successful the Germans were, then it is interesting that uh, that idea could have been applied to a British fighter uh, long before uh, the Germans got going with it. This, the Arado, I, I'd seen one of these in April 45 and I'd managed a visit to Farnborough and someone showed me one. The engines had been taken away uh, for trials. And, but it, I thought then it looked quite small. It is quite small. Uh, if you stood by, you sort of, uh, you, well, you were looking in the cockpit, almost as high as the cockpit. It was, it, it was tiny. But what an amazing thing. That is brilliant. Because this is coming into service at the end of 1944. A jet bomber. Uh, weapons externally carried, of course. Uh, and at the time, people thought, well, that's a bit old-fashioned. And, of course, we accept it now. But uh, that was different. And we walked round this, but the finish on it was much better than the ME262. And I did discover that I think one flew over East Anglia uh, on a Monday before the end of the war, uh, about quarter past two. If so, it was the first intrusion in, into England 
of a jet bomber. But when you think, this is in service in 44, and we've got to wait till 1951 for the camera, that just shows how advanced these things were. The thinking was advanced. 20,000 pounds, top speed 490. Wow, that's really going places. Nothing would have caught one. Uh, the one that came over East Anglia was contrailing, and they reckoned it was over 30,000 feet. Uh, and two of those short-life engines, of course, that's a problem. Again, long run, so it had a braking chute. Uh, one of the braking chutes was in the exhibition, which we saw later. Very compact aeroplane, and a very smooth outline. I then, I said to my father, there aren't many German bombers about, are there? Well, of course, uh, in 1942, they mounted the Vatica raids, and uh, then they did low-level raids at night in the Midlands. Uh, but by 1943, they needed defending. They didn't need bombers, and they were getting rid of bombers. But this one was interesting. I was speaking to uh, quite an elderly chap the other day, and he said to me, do you know, he said, when I was a boy, you could tell an aeroplane by its sound. So I said, yeah, I know you could. You, you could, certainly. Well, it was the end of October 43 when I was standing outside, there had been an aero warning, and I heard a most peculiar sound. It was different to anything I'd heard before. I mean, the Dornier 17 rattled along, or you know, the eight sounded so smooth, and the high called sort of boom part. But this thing, it sounded a bit like sandpaper. I wondered what it was. We found out, by various means, that it was a J188. So I was lovely. I was very pleased to look at it. And I asked, why that nose? Why have you enlarged it? And I discovered that, well, it wasn't just so the pilot could see better, but possibly it might, it might just have had to carry a guided missile and you would need a jolly good view from the front. Oh, that's why the Lincoln had that sort of nose for Blue Boar. So you could see it and you could guide it. Oh, I know now. Yes, that was very surprising. This one was captured at Lubeck. And uh, it I don't know whether it took part. It probably did. And the last sort of German bomber attempt, uh, which was a raid on shipping off the Orkneys, and they had got to such a poor state, they couldn't even find the ships. It, it's a sad way for such a wonderful nation to have gone, surely. When I went on the Sunday, I went with my lifelong friend Alan Wright, who used to write quite a lot. And uh, Alan said, well, there's some things I'd like to look at. I said, well, I'll pick some I didn't see the other day. So I went to the JU-388. I thought, fancy seeing one of the amazing things to see that. And Alan was somewhere, and I happened to put... Of course, I, you've got to take your own food with you. My mother and me was in jam sandwiches, so I popped them on the wheel. <laughs> and Alan said to me, you'll make history. No one's ever put a jam sandwich on the wheel of a jam <laughs> three at eight. And then, oh, now this. Wow, well, I saw this. Oh, I know something about this. My uncle was the area boss of civil defence, which is very handy because he liked me anyway, and I liked him. <laughs> so I can find out a lot of things. And it must have been about the end of June 1944 when a signal came. It was that something had made a very big hole in the Surrey countryside. But people had looked in the hole, and they found no evidence of shrapnel, and they found no evidence of anything else. And they didn't know what had caused it. They assumed it was a flying bomb. A uh, very heavily fine bomb, and it made this big hole, but it, it's possible, but there's no proof. That was the first uh, one to come down in Britain. The other one we know about came down to Andover. Uh, by the way, Mistral. I thought, I wonder what Mistral means. And when I looked it up, it's mistletoe. And of course, mistletoe is a parasite. So you've got a bomber with a parasite fighter. This is rather clever. <laughs> and uh, what was it intended for? Well, in a way, this is the nearest thing that the Germans had to uh, the Dammers raid. They, they had a what you might call a panacea target. They knew that around Moscow there were lots of power stations. Uh, along the Volga River there were power stations. In southern Russia there were more power stations. Could you one night 
attack all those power stations and the power dams where there are hydroelectric stations. Could you do it? If you did, you really would do harm to the Russians. So they got busy in 1943 trying to do that, but it took a while to develop the aircraft and uh, uh, it was an ME109 at first on top of it, and the ME109 hadn't got a very long range, and the Russians were pushing the Germans back. They were pushing them back so far that it would have been very difficult to have made a missile attack on the power stations. So that was out. So another thought was to attack Scapa Flow. So they moved some of these things into Denmark, into Terstrup, and uh, hoped they could attack the scupper flow. But they weren't ready in time. Then when the invasion took place in, Nor in Normandy, they moved them to St. Dizier and they did operate for the first time. It was one of those that got out of control that crashed at Andover. Uh, so, yes, they were using them, but not for the purpose intended. And they were having a Focal 190 controlling it. But I was thinking the other day, the, the pilot had electronic control of the 88. So was that the first time you could sort of say anyone flew by wire? If so, that's pretty clever for 1943. And that's how they control them. But fancy flying one of those, fancy being in the, the Falk 190 and <laughs> thinking you've got that thing below and you've got to land it. That, that would sure be some, some experience. Uh, and there's another view of it, you see. And... Uh, after the invasion, they didn't want to do with them and they tried to attack bridges on the Eastern Front and then they hadn't really achieved much and in April uh, the 8th Air Force <coughs> bombed uh, Reckland where lots of them were and that was the end of it. And uh, yeah, a clever idea. At the time, of course, uh, when it was released as it existed, the British government said, oh, they're only they're doing it because they're so short of bombers and that. But actually... There was more to it than you might have thought. Of course, you'd seen an ME-110. I remembered being at Duxford on the 7th of September, 1941. A station commander was a friend of a friend of mine, and he said, get there in the middle of the afternoon, you'll see something wonderful. And it was the day that the enemy aircraft flight came up from Farnborough. And there was his ME-110, and there was the Heinkolony, Junkers, and nearly everything at Duxford went up. And a formation came over, and I think I'm right in saying there were 24 types in it, including a Blackburn Rock, there was a skewer, there was an albacore, all escorting these German aircraft in. So the ME-110, one of them, it, it was something, you know, I always remember them seeing land there. But then at Farnborough, you had the opportunity to look at these radar things with all these weird aerials and what have you, and look to see if you could see where the guns were that pointed upwards. And, of course, this is a standard sort of night fighter, not as far as the Mozzie, it's 368, from perhaps 370 miles an hour, say. It could have carried bombs. It all had those common messages of auto-wing-leading edge slats. They seemed to go in for that. Uh, but this would have been the standard night fighter. But here's the alternative. This is panic in the middle of the war. In 1942, a B-29 visited the UK. It went to Bassingbourne, it went to Bovingdon, and it went up to uh, a place near Hunter, to Glatton, near uh, Huntington. And the Germans obviously knew about it. And it was a... I've put one in the far corner there. It, it, it terrified them. Are they going to use these B-29s? They'll be very high, they're very fast. Uh, what are we going to do then? And, of course, along comes this... New version of the high of the Fort 190 and carries the name of Kurt Tank because he, he had done so much for the Third Reich. And he said, Well, it's high time, you know, he had a name on an aeroplane himself. Messerschmitt has one. Well, why not him? And uh, hence the TA 152 came about very fast, just coming into use in 1945. As we walked around, we passed a Jungus 52. And I remember saying to my dad, that's the only thing that frightened me during the war, because it looked so Teutonic, and I could imagine paratroopers jumping out of it. And in 1940, I thought, well, yeah, they're going to come. And I was horrified when I walked into the middle of Cambridge, and if you know Cambridge, there's a big grass area called Midsummer Common. And overnight, people had erected posts and put lots of wires between them. 
and there were tripwires. And then they appeared on the airfields that were being built, like Waterbeach, for instance. And they were covered in these wires for the fear that the youngest 52s might come. And I, I found it a very spooky sort of... It, it looks so Germanic as well. But the other alternative would have been to look at this three-engine machine. It wasn't the aeroplane necessarily, but of course, this is clever. It's got this drop-down ramp, which drops down and lifts the aircraft at the same time. Um, so you could run a, a truck up there, or you could walk up the middle piece. We walked up the middle, naturally, because it was such a thrill to go anything like that. And I thought, that's very clever. And, of course, one thing everybody wanted to see in the Battle of Britain was a, t- a Junkers 90. Where's this big German bomber? Well, in the middle of August 40, someone was rewarded. They reported one, and they reported it to the aeroplane. And Peter Maysville was over the moon. I I said to him, I remember reading about this. He said, yes, he said, we were so thrilled we got a reporter. It wasn't. It was a Halifax. And when you look at it, I mean, it looks a bit like a Halifax. But, of course, we did see the real thing, the 290. A very big, very impressive aeroplane. And not only a transport, but a reconnaissance aeroplane. And this was an aeroplane that would have supported those raids on Russia by the Mistal. It would have done the reconnaissance to see if all was well later, because they didn't really think that it was at risk with lots of turrets and things. Uh, had a sad end, and of course nearly all of these had a sad end. Nearly all these German aeroplanes were just broken up at the end of 45. And this, but this one, and you see in the bottom corner here, it um, sat at Farnborough and it was there for the first SBAC show and people going around it and pulling bits off it and what have you. And I thought it was really sad. We could have kept it. Why didn't we keep it? I, I, this amazed me. I could see so much in this that was, it was very clever. The, all those wheels are there to take the weight when you're loading and the thing tips and what have you. It's got that thin boom, but the thin boom means that you can have clamshell doors behind uh, to put your, your load in. And uh, it, it looked to me to be quite an aeroplane. But, of course, it was very slow, a bit ungainly, I should think. But my, I daren't say this, I shouldn't say this with one of our visitors here this evening, but my friend said to me on the Sunday, push that button. I said, what is it? He said, I don't know. So I pushed it. It was the engine start button. Oh, thank goodness there's no feel about. <laughs> uh, and here we have intended to be a JU-52 replacement with a box and a boom layout, the multi-wheels for low landing. Uh, not many built, actually. I suppose they gained their thinking of uh, fast aeroplanes like this ME-410. This is an interesting one, and it shows that the state which they got, instead of being a bomber, it's a coastal strike aircraft with special radar and uh, a very heavy forward armor, of course. And uh, you wouldn't have thought that would be used for that, but bombing is beyond their needs. And, of course, this is the aeroplane. We had a look at, quick look at this because we'd heard about it and everybody talked about it at the time. said, a JU-88 uh, uh, has landed at Woodbridge. And we didn't know, of course, the significance of it. But the radar would carry Monica, which was the tower warning uh, equipment going on to Lancaster's. And it also carried Nexus. And it could home onto H2S. After that, Bomber Command had to be careful whether he used it. Uh, we walked by this. I remember thinking, this is really, really awful. This is a flying bomb with someone in it, flying in a flying bomb. Uh, is it uh, a sort of thing you do, you give, you give your life when you're getting ready to join ISIS years later or something? Uh, are you mad enough to, to go in this? Well, no, of course it was used partly for... for uh, uh, general sort of research. Uh, I'd seen this flying. I saw it coming to Cambridge on the 7th of July and it did a few flights between Farnborough and Germany. And we went over to it. I'd also seen another one. And I'm told I didn't see it, but I did see it. Uh, I saw one in 1942 over home in the searchlights and it was from KG40 and it was dropping flares for a Dornier 217 raid on part of Cambridge, a special part of Cambridge. 
So I'd seen one, but the thought of getting in it, and I got in it without realising what it was. I got aboard, and there was nobody else around except somebody inside. He said, oh, he said, would you like to sit in his seat? So I said, whose seat? So he said, Himmler's seat. My goodness, I said, Himmler's seat? Where is it? So we went to the front, and it was pretty grim inside. It was grey and dark green and brown. And he said, well, that's a seat, and this here, this is the uh, armour plate prote- protection which you have. He said, yeah, yeah, this is... And I turned around, my father was there. He said, I don't know how you could bring yourself to sit in that seat. That man is one of the most, possibly the most evil person ever born. He said, get out of that seat. And the chap said to me, well, he said, if you were him, no, you could have gone down <laughs> very quickly because there was a, a means of exit downwards. But it also was used by other senior Nazis and uh, Donitz had it at the end when, of course, he took over from Hitler. But it was quite a thought to sit in Himmler's seat. I, I kept thinking about that for many, many days. I thought, fancy sitting in his seat. As we left the uh, aircraft to see the other part of the exhibition, we looked and what was on the airfield? My goodness, what a collection. Every one of those, you know, if we saw it today, what a thrill we'd have. Fancy seeing a British Royal Navy Douglas Dauntless. Wow, that was a sight. And a Mustang still in its brown and green colours from 42. And a Lincoln for the Far East, of course. And look, there's a Martinet coming in. There's the Heinkel that's in the Irish Museum now, of course, which was captured uh, near Paris and used by the 56 fighter group uh, after uh, some while, and uh, that was put there after the war. But there was so much more to see. We haven't got time to hang around. There's the SF. No, you haven't got time to look at that. What what, let's get inside. <gasps> what have we got in? Good gracious. Well, of course, there's no one in here. It's taking a special day. But we see... Uh, Let's have a point. We can see the, in the foreground, is part of an ME 109. Here, there's an ME 163. Well, you've seen quite a number of times you've seen that. Over here, there are two Heinkel 162s. What on earth? That's that thing. We'll have a look later. Over here is the Horton, a Horton 4, because on the way to Horton 9 to the bomber. But the wing is very, very, long and the aspect ratio is uh, over 21 so it's a very narrow wing and here's a parachute which is uh, used for, for slowing up this is the olympia glider ah yes when i was with standing by the mistal i said to somebody well I, how do you go on training crews in how did they train crews when uh, the country was going down so badly so he said what well, he said, they trained the Hitler Youth on the on these. He said, and the idea was to put the Hitler Youth into Heinkel 162s. You just really mean teenagers racing around in these things. Um, they're going to kill themselves and everybody else, aren't they? I mean, they're absolutely lethal. And uh, there was the ME 163. We saw that, the Horton Glider. And, uh, and there was a JU-88 showing the undercarriage. Ah, in the corner... Ah, well, let's go by the Heinkel 162. Yes, an exploded one there with a jet engine on the top. Very narrow track undercarriage. Let's keep walking. What on earth is this? Uh, it turned out, eventually, we discovered that it was the ME-155, a naval fighter, a fast bomber, then a high-altitude fighter, and the work was switched to Roman Voss, and one of the prototypes was destroyed. This wasn't finished, and it was brought along. And it was estimated that it could go to a staggering 52,480 feet at that speed. Wow. I mean, that's the going place. If it did it, if it did it. You often see that picture, but you don't see what it looked like. I found that general arrangement drawing there. Uh, I had taken with me lots of pencils, and I started drawing when I got in the hangar. And I thought, well, when I get home, I'll transfer my drawings to my diary. So I looked in my diary when I was preparing this. I found that no less than 85 pages of drawings and information I'd picked up. I thought, my goodness, I must have worked hard on those two occasions. And that was part of the integral uh, equipment uh, structure on the, on the wing of the BV-155. But there were so many things I wanted to look at. Ah, this. 
Now, I thought this was the highlight of all the time I spent there. Not the big glider, not the BB-246, could be launched very high. Amazing thing about it was it had a metal spar, but it had a concrete wing. You don't get many concrete aeroplanes, do you? <laughs> uh, and there were these others hanging around. There was the, this glider, glider bomb, uh, Angel 293, and over here, I think, that's the X4, I think. And I walked around. Here was Fritz X. Oh, I heard about those. We'd heard about those. We had warning of those in the civil defence business. Uh, a guided bomb uh, dropped on Plymouth and uh, dropped on Portsmouth. But then past this, this is a weird-looking thing, and then we got to this. Well, I couldn't find a nice picture of it that I wanted, but I went to my diary, and that's, I stood by it, and I drew it. It's a two-stage rocket. So I said to my friend, hey, what about a two-stage V2? Can you have a two-stage V2? Well, can you? If you can have a two-stage, could you have a bigger one? Could you do what we've always heard about, get that moon rocket? Well, of course, huh, desperation and brilliance, Wow. Yeah, heading that way. Actually, it wasn't a very successful weapon bowl account, so I read some reports on what they'd done with it, and uh, it didn't do very well for various reasons. Probably the guidance was a, a problem, and it uh, petered out at 20,000 feet, which wasn't high enough to get a B-17. But there's Fritz X, the thing here, which is a guided bomb, the sort of thing that you'd... Oh, you'd look out the front of a 188 if you could carry it, you might carry it on a Dornier. Could you carry it on a Heinkel 170? Yes. Plenty of room at the front to sit. What on earth is this contraption? I, I know I've seen one of these. I've, I've handled one of those. This thing in the corner. It's a BSB 700. Wow. It's, this is, has revolving sections and the fire bombs, incendiaries are clipped on and they come out ejected here, and one was dropped over Clacton, and it was dropped over shopping centre, and it had 700 incendiaries in, and that was really, really something, because they were thrown out, not dropped like they normally were, and just at random. I stood and I drew that Fritz X, I thought, God, I'd never see a thing like that, fancy seeing one, I thought, and I patted it like you do, you know, <laughs> you know, touched a Fritz X, wow. And then I went over and do the, do the, the glider bomb, and I thought, well, I, all the bits were labelled, so I copied it down as I saw it. And uh, then I saw the Henshaw 298, an anti-aircraft thing, I copied that. And what had I seen? Ryan Topter, the 293, the 298, that concrete wing thing, and a Fire Lily 25 rocket research, a Schmetterling, and... Uh, Ah, something from Vulcan Road. The only mention of Vulcan Road that I saw, and I knew about it because a cousin was, was there. He helped load some of the bits and pieces, and he told me wonderful things happened there. So that was the only thing I saw. Then we entered the rooms. We started going to the exhibition rooms, and it was endless. You kept seeing more and more. Everywhere you looked, there were things you could spend ten minutes looking at. But time was short. At the far end... Here, there was an SB-1000. That was the bomb that might have been carried to attack the power stations in Germany with a mistral before they decided to have a hollow charge in the nose so the thing, the nose hit, the charge went forward and it would damage a, a dam. That was their dam buster weapon. But this was the successor. And uh, I can't find a picture of it, but I did find a drawing of it in the book of mine. And... Uh, it was a most peculiar thing. It was either made of aluminium or thin steel, and it had a parachute that deployed from the rear, and it was a thousand pound, hence the thousand kilogram, two thousand pound bomb, and uh, it 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 was intended to make a soft landing, because there would be targets where it would be better to have a soft landing. Whether one landed in March railway yards, I don't think anybody really determined. There was a very big hole, gigantic bomb, and the blast sort of went sideways. It was more a blast weapon than uh, uh, explosive. Of course, when we got to V1, well, I think I could have spent two days there. 
around the area, you can see all the components. Uh, this, was, uh, this is on a ramp, on part eight of the ramp at the end. And there was a map, and oh, only if one had a digital camera then, I could have photographed it. This map was so cleverly done that the uh, angle of set of the V1 launch sites were all on this map, and lines were drawn from them, projecting to where the weapon would go. But I did discover quite recently, and I was very surprised to hear about it, some flying bombs could change course dramatically. Almost 90 degrees. They could veer off course. And that was very clever. Uh, and of course, the idea had been that with V1, you'd have V2 at the same time. And if on New Year's Day 1944, you could have launched V1s, V2s, and bombed London at the same time. That would have been fantastic. But of course, it was a dream. It couldn't come about. And in fact, on the night the first V1s went, you may remember, there were only ten of them, and not hundreds as they'd expected. But uh, that map, oh, how I wish I'd had a camera to photograph it. I drew it. Uh, apparently, uh, the, at the time it was said, and we used to get slips of paper about this, that some of these carried incendiary bombs. I never saw it confirmed, but I think it was true. You could alter the distance which it flew with having more fuel and a smaller warhead. And there was terrible worry when one shot up right through the middle of England and landed at Fal near Falmere, uh, not far from Duxford. And another one came down at Peasenhall uh, in Suffolk. And they, they were very long-range weapons. And if you could do that, could they hit the airfields? Could they hit the American air bases? It was uh, quite a big aeroplane. See, 25-foot span, when you think of clip wing Spitfire, going to be about 32. It was a fair size. I discovered also, not long after, I said, where do they make these things? I said, oh, they make them at Volkswagen. <laughs> so if you've got a Volkswagen, you know you've got a sort of a V1 <laughs> history inside of it. Then we went on to V2. This was the V2 that was taken to Farnborough uh, in pieces. Uh, the V2 uh, exhibition wasn't quite so interesting. I, I looked around and I took a few details and what have you, but I thought, this is huge. What a massive great thing. How far will it travel? I discovered that its um, normal endurance was something like 70, 75 seconds, and uh, quite a lot of them got in trouble. Uh, again, the Luftwaffe must have loved Clacton, or the German army in this case, but they fired one of these and it had an airburst right over the front and it was horrendous. It was quite low and the thing burst above with the sonic boom as well and it was terribly frightening for the people there. But a lot did have airbursts. I went some years ago with a group to Holland to see the launch site of the first V2. So we went to Vassenaar, which is near Volkenburg, Volkenburg, the um, Dutch Navy Air Base, and the uh, launch site was at the crossroads. And uh, we went to them, we stood there, and I thought, how amazing. There was a lovely house nearby. I wondered who was living in that old house at the time. <laughs> what a thing to see, a V2 going up, and that's the first one from these crossroads in, in the forest. Then we went on, Group B, to, to round off. Uh, we saw the engines, we looked at uh, the modern engines, and of course I wanted to see that amazing engine, two engines in one that powered the Heike 177. And uh, it, it had a common reduction gear, and uh, there was a huge sort of spur drive to the, the main, uh, main prop shaft. And, uh, but the torsion involved and the harmonic vibrations, apparently they had been very difficult to counteract. The idea was to have a four-engine bomber power in a two-engine layout. And there's a picture of it, with its couple to the single drive, giving a lot of power for takeoff, but a very troublesome engine. And here were three typical late-war engines. They don't look a bit like English engines, do they? The, the layout is so different. You say, well, it doesn't look like a Rolls-Royce or a Bristol, and the bottom one's got a BMW uh, 801. And this is a really big engine. It was cut apart at the show, and you could see all the different parts and so on. And uh, 
they'd improved their engines just like we have with extra superchargers and uh, the superchargers also uh, could, instead of that you could have injection, you could have uh, assisted injection with chemicals to make the make it do much better. And then there were the two German engines, one cut away, but of course uh, they were rather in a way overshone because there were seven British engines and you walked around and there were so many uh, British engines as you hadn't seen, you saw the Neen, wonderful engine, never used, it should have been used, never used, great shame. And you could actually see a British actual flow engine, two of them in fact. But they were very complicated things and very complex. And that wasn't the end of it. Oh, no, there were the bombs and what have you to look at. Well, I'd always been fascinated with these things because my father uh, and I sometimes had to go into the countryside and pick up uh, maybe two or three incendiary bombs that had been you know, just dropped and the fuses had gone, the detonators were taken out, and we'd bring them back. Well, when I saw this... I said to my friend, ah, I remember that. I remember a flare. I went out with my father into the countryside and we reached a little village near Burwell in Cambridgeshire. And uh, the policeman came to me and said, here you are, lad, put this on your lap and hold it, he said. And I said, what is it? So he said, it's a flare. Good gracious, he said, that string, don't pull the string. <laughs> and he went back, he came and he said, there's another one. <laughs> I sat there, not very happy, you know, sort of a bit uneasy. <laughs> Don't pull the string. And, of course, we did see and could hold one of these. You could hold a butterfly bomb. A child held a butterfly bomb in Ipswich, and it went off. A policeman had a collection of children. The butterfly bombs had been distributed from Adornia, and they were intended to hit the docks, but they fell on tele telephone wires and the trolleybus wires. And the policeman said, oh, look, and it fell, and he caught it. And it was instantaneous detonation. This one here is a bigger... There. That's a, that's a type used for uh, dropping on bomber bases. Witchford near Ely, uh, that had a dose. Meeple, where 75 Squadron Lanks were... That, that received them. The bottom one, now I did see one of these, one of the early ones, is what was known as a fire pot, and it's got various parts to it. The nose is explosive. This is a very powerful one there, and this, there's 67 little strips of thermite of triangular section. This thing at the back is whipped off. As it whipped off, it set the detonator, those went off. As they went off, these were thrown out and caught fire. And on a delay mechanism, this was for the benefit of the fire brigade. One of them landed in Jesus Lane. I think we have someone here tonight who lived in Jesus Lane. Perhaps he remembered it. And it hit uh, this uh, wall in Jesus Lane, opposite Jesus College in Cambridge. You can still see the hole in the brickwork where this thing went in. And it also burnt out the famous pit club here at Cambridge University. And then we went to the structures lab. Well, there was work going on, meteors, seeing how strong they were, looking at the rear fuselage. Oh, dear. <laughs> if anyone had anything to do with meteors, they looked at the rear fuselage and the tail unit. Uh, and uh, the Lincoln wingtips were being subjected to upward forces. Well, if you flew in a Lincoln, you could see them waving at you almost. Ah, ah and at the end... My friend Alan said to me, you know, he said, I'd love to go back and look at that Rhine Topter and the BV. Hang on a minute. What's this thing? What is that? It's the fin of a Dornia. It's a, it's D, good gracious, it's U5DK. He said, that's the Dornia that came down in Cambridge. He said, there's nobody about. You go under the ropes and have a close look at it. Because if you do, you will see about there a little maker's plate. And that maker's plate, I think you know quite well. He said, go and have a look. So there was no one looking and the show was closing. It was Sunday afternoon. And people were leaving at four o'clock. Good gracious, it was. When this Dornier came down, 
in amazing circumstances, I managed to get a good look round it, and I worked my way round it after a lot of talking, and I copied from the fin from my diary this maker's plate. But the odd thing was, this number is a number of Adornia 217E, and not uh, the aeroplane which had crashed was a 217M. So the fin had come off a, an early Adornia. The reason it was in the exhibition was that it had a slat at the front, and it was quite a novel to see a slat on a fin, and it worked in conjunction with the flaps when it was landing to improve the landing. So it was definitely what we called our Dornia. Wow, I was amazed. This was U5DK, and it took me nearly 40 years to find the pilot. He lived in Dortmund. He was 91, and he wrote his story. He said, we came in the Dornia and we, circ- we were too early. KG-66 hadn't got there with the flares. And he said, we, we circled, let's go back, we circled uh, London and as we got north of London, we met a rocket barrage and a home guard rocket barrage and they encompassed this Dornia. And uh, the crew realised, you know, that the aircraft hadn't been brought down, although it had been badly bumped about, but the rudders had stuck. And the rudder had stuck, and there's nothing he could do to do anything about it to alter it. So, of course, it circled London, and he thought, gosh, we're going around there again? No, (laughs) not again. We don't want to give more target practice. So they bailed out, some at Wembley, and the pilot a little further north here. Well, he got out, and the Dornier flew on. But when he got out, he he wrote to me and he said, please don't give the letter to anybody until, you know, you've gone. Keep it, keep it special and pass it on. But he said, you can tell people what happened. He said, because I landed in the garden and I landed by a cabbage patch. I thought, good gracious, I'm in uniform, I've got a parachute, what do I do? So he said, I ripped the parachute off, stuffed it under a lot of cabbages, stood there, and a lady came out of an aero shelter. She said, oh, she said, you shouldn't be here. There's an air raid on. <laughs> so she took him into the shelter, and there were one or two people in there. Uh, there was a policeman there, and there was an air raid wardens, and they didn't say much. And she said, I brought this young man in, because he can't be out there. There's an air raid on. And he said, and he knew enough English, he said, one of them said, oh, well, I won't use the word, but <laughs> goodness gracious, He's a German airman. He's caused it. <laughs> he said, there's anything I wanted to do. He said, I said, what? Can I use your uh, to, to toilet? <laughs> and of course, the bomber flew on. But he, he said, uh, they sent for the police and they took me away. And he said, and it wasn't as bad as I thought. And eventually he went to Canada. And uh, one of the people who investigated him was Newton John, was uh, living Newton John's father, who I knew very well. He was in AI too. Here, well, here was the Dornia, and it ends up in Cambridge. And it belly flopped like that. And in this house up here, that window, there was a small boy. And he heard this noise, and it was about half past ten at night, and he looked out of the window. Good gracious, there's a Dornier in the garden. So he rushed to see his father. He says, Dad, Dad, we've got a Dornier in the garden. So he said, Dad sat up in bed, and he said, he cuffed me hard, knocked me over, and he said, don't be such a stupid boy. So he said, I said, Dad, there's a Dornier in the garden. So he said, oh, so he went and had a look. And he said, my dad turned to me, and he said, there's a Dornier in the garden. <laughs> But he pulled it, turned it to good account. Next day, it was, would you like to see the Dornier for sixpence? <laughs> and he made quite a, he said it was for the national, national health, or national, uh, you know, for the nation making. And, well, it's 70 years on. Uh, that corner here, just there, is where the Dornier flopped. You see, and there's St. George's Church. And he came down on these allotments all the way from London to Cambridge without the crew. 
When it landed, of course, people said, where's the crew? And they were a bit worried, you know, they thought they were anywhere. Well, I went to the spot 30 years afterwards to take a photograph of it for Otto, who was the pilot, you see, and I sent it to him, and he said, oh, amazing. He said, think that, you know, that's what it was like where it ended. So this year, on the 17th anniversary of it, in February, I went to the spot, and there was a big notice to finish with, a large council notice said, anyone entering here will be prosecuted. <laughs> I thought, it didn't prosecute the crew of the Dornier. <laughs> oh, the Dornier. And the fellow said to me, what are you doing? So I said, I want to see where the Dornier came down. I thought he was going to cuff me like, like Dad did the boys. No Dornier came down here. <laughs> I said, well, it did. I said, it was brought along this road, you know. And I said, you built a road since those days. They had to bring it along these tracks. And this is the road it came along. And it came down in that corner. So I made my way to that corner. I was very disappointed. There's not a plaque there. There's a greenhouse. And inside, a chap was growing strawberries. <laughs> and they were ripening in February. So I thought, well, I don't know if that's, that's a good way to end, really. That's something good. Come out of something bad. Well, I hope that you, you, that's probably not what you expected, but that's as I saw it. And, uh, I hope that, <laughs> hope you aren't going to throw anything. <laughs> Thank you.